Uh, does everybody have a handout that wants one? We've got more coffee brewing, by the way. Those of you who uh, didn't get the coffee, if you want to. There's more on the way. Fear not. Anybody else? Good to go? Good. All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the gifts that you so freely give to us and the way that you continue to kindle and rekindle the flame of faith in our hearts. We pray that uh, as we gather together this morning to study your word and learn more about um, the gifts that you give to us in worship, that you would further fan into flame that great gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, looks like I have a little helper here this morning. What is that, gorilla? (laughs) Good. Um, So, uh, today we are continuing our study entitled The Rhythm of Faith, looking at Lutheran worship, why we worship the way that we do, and we've been drawing out some of the deep uh, significances and implications in our worship, the way, the way that we worship in what we call the liturgy or that order of service, and um, we've talked about the invocation, calling on the, the name of God. Last week we um, delved deeper into confession and absolution, and now we're uh, getting into the next part of the service known as the service of the word. There's kind of three big parts to the liturgy. The first part is the service of preparation, which is all uh, the confession and absolution principally. Then there's the service of the word, which starts, as we'll do today, with the intro it, all the way up to the prayers and offering. And then there's the service of the sacrament, okay, with beginning with the sacrament and then through the end of the service. So there's kind of those three big chunks. Today we're getting into that second main part, the service of the word, with intro it and the Kyrie. And the focus um, of the intro is especially on our starting, our coming into God's presence. So let's just get after it right away here. Number one on your handout, the intro it, which comes from the Latin word introitus, which means entrance, it sounds the keynote for the day. Sounds the keynote for the day. I ought to have brought the worship folder with us today. Anybody have today's worship folder handy? Okay, that's fine. So... uh, one, one thing that the intro it does each week, and it's um, always this selection of verses from the Psalms, is it kind of sounds the keynote for the day. It um, is suggestive of the day's theme. And so here you have in um, the intro, it, I, for, this is from Psalm 119. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Seven times a day I praise you for your just and righteous decrees. Grant peace. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. And then you have the Gloria Patri, the Glory Be. And then again, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. That verse that's repeated at the beginning and the end is called the antiphon, which uh, means literally the sounding back and forth. Um, And so uh, traditionally... the this would even be sung well, similar to what we do um, in worship where um, the cantor or the pastor sings part of it and the congregation sings the other part. There's that back and forth. But that name is also for um, the, that verse at the beginning and the end, the antiphon. So, okay, so there's a focus in this selection from Psalm 119, this intro it, on the doing of God's commandments. All right? Loving God's testimonies, striving to keep his will. Now then, if you look at what today's gospel said, and it's typically keyed to the gospel in particular, in today's gospel from Luke 17, 
you had Jesus saying, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So the intro is already kind of keying into that theme of the gospel of doing God's commandments, following his will. Thank you for letting that So that's one aspect of what the intro does for us each week. And this is just a a neat historical um, tidbit. Historically, the intro also lends its name to the Sundays in Advent, Lent, and Easter. Do any of you remember this? So here's just some examples. First Sunday in Advent is traditionally called Ad Te Lavavi. You got some more. Um, Ad Te Lavavi, which means to you I lift. Or the third Sunday in Advent, Gaudete, rejoice. Any of these ringing a bell? Maybe a little bit. Um, In Lent, the first Sunday in Lent is Invocabit, when he calls from Psalm 91. Uh, The fourth Sunday in Lent, Letare, also means rejoice. And then maybe my favorite of all, the second Sunday of Easter, Quasimodo Geniti, as newborn babes. And there's many others besides. But the reason this is, the reason that the intro would lend its name to the the name for the Sunday is that um, originally what we have as the service of preparation, confession and absolution, was not part of the the corporate gathering of worship. But um, confession and absolution would typically take place before the service. Now, again, this is before my time really in, um, in the Lutheran church, but it used to be the case that you would have to declare for communion, right? Um, and maybe even before um, your guys' time here, but Saturday night, um, the pastor would receive confessions and, and give absolution so that it was, a, it was kind of a separate thing. Um, and then, you know, the, the service on Sunday, the corporate gathering, would start right away with the intro. It. And thus, the very first word that you would hear for, for the day, for example, if it was the fourth Sunday of Easter or of, in Lent, would be Laetare. Okay? It would be like the first word out of the mouth. And therefore, the Sundays came to just have that name. Oh, it's Laetare Sunday. Does that make sense? Right, it's an interesting kind of historical progression. I'm not saying it's better or worse how we have it now. It kind of just is what it is. But now we have that service of preparation. I think recognizing, look, we could say, hey, people, you ought to show up for um, confession and absolution on Saturday. And you know, maybe one person shows up, right? Um, so it's just, again, it is what it is. I'd love to see us um, in our church body kind of get to a point where people more avail themselves of the gift of absolution. Um, for those of you who attended, uh, what's his name, Pastor Bruzik's lectures this um, summer at camp, I thought he did a really nice job of talking about the gifts of, of hearing private absolution, that personal word of forgiveness. But be that as it may, um, the intro it then was originally the very beginning of the service. Now it's kind of like the next step to it. Okay, It's that entrance into it. So that number two on your handout, the intro, it primes us for entering God's presence. So it kind of sounds the keynote for the day, but it also primes us for entering his presence. 
Um, reflecting this idea from the Psalms, especially Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. And let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And again, Psalm 5. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So that intro it is getting us ready for entering into God's presence. I was thinking about this. I'll throw this out at you, see what you guys think. It's almost like we have a picture of the worship service, of the, the liturgy, like a house, like a home. And the intro it, um, well, maybe the service of preparation is like the mud room, okay? You got to come in and first, you know, you got to clean the, clean the mud off and, and get it all uh, nice and good as you're, you're coming in, you know, um, getting, the, getting the sins cleaned off. Ann and I, uh, and the kids actually, were watching an episode of one of our all-time favorite shows, Fixer Upper, the other day. And in their mud room, they even had a bath for the dog. So that's a really cool idea. <laughs> they can do that in the houses that they have on, on Fixer Upper. Um, but, uh, the, so that's kind of the mud room, the service of preparation. But now it's like we're getting into the house proper, okay? With the intro, it, with the entrance, and you're, you're coming in. And now it's like we're coming in with glad hearts. And it's all moving toward the ultimate goal, which is, of course, the supper table. <laughs> that that's really where God is going to meet us around his supper. And in, in so many homes, in modern homes especially, really accentuate this, don't they? That the kitchen and the dining, that that's the place where everybody, you know, gathers together. You have the open concept. <laughs> um, but even for those of us with more traditional homes where there's actually rooms... Uh, you know, it's all kind of moving toward that place where we can gather together at table. So I think that's another way of thinking about the worship service. This is like a home, moving in until finally we come to the Lord's table. And then after the meal, God kicks us out and sends us back out into the world. <laughs> it's been nice having you. Now go out and bring these blessings to, to others. Uh, so that's really all I want to say about the intro. There's not um, too much, I don't think, to explain about it. But any, any questions about the intro, either kind of historically or just, you know, in terms of verses? Yeah. Uh, historically, are you referring to historically uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, or the Lutheran Church right. in Europe? Or, yeah, good or question. Christianity? More generally, right. So the uh, question is, you know, when I talk about historically the role of the intro, it, this is going back to um, probably 3rd, 4th century A.D. And actually, uh, the, there's a, another interesting um, tidbit about this, which is that um, the church, Christians would gather together, and uh, they would gather like a central basilica in a town, and then they would move um, kind of out to their different parish churches. And the intro, it would be a psalm, it would be longer, psalms that would be sung on their way, okay? So it would be kind of a traveling song, or if, if you will, uh, um, what do you call that, with, where it's like a, uh, not a movable feast, but uh, progressive where, a progressive dinner, yes. It was like a progressive dinner, okay? Where you go from um, this church to the next church, and the intro would be, they would be singing the psalms as they go. Now, remember, part of the, uh, what makes sense of that is for pastors in the first few centuries of, of the church would in many cases need to memorize the entire book of Psalms before ordination. And so you have the pastors kind of leading the, the people in the singing of the, of the Psalms as they go. So yes, this is well predates the Reformation 
and continued was carried through into the Reformation. So the liturgy, uh, I know many denominations have it. Yeah, yes, Catholic yeah. Church. Uh, the, Dude, yeah, there is a hot right pot there. of coffee here if anybody wants to refill their cup. Thanks, John. So, yeah, so, I mean, you could go into, um, I mean, we're not the only ones who, who will sing the intro. I mean, yeah, Catholic churches, Anglican churches, others. Um, this will be, it's, it's a, a traditional part of the Western, what gets called the Western liturgy, as opposed to the Eastern, or the Orthodox liturgy. Mm -hmm. Good. Any other questions or comments about the, the intro? I have a question. Yeah. Um, so, I'm looking at two of the examples about the, the names of the Sundays. And in English, two of them say rejoice. Is that like celebrate, rejoice, have a party? Like, yeah. are, is it just basically they're synonyms for each other? Yeah, more or less. So they come, um, the, the one in Advent, um, the Gaudete, the intro, it comes from um, Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I, I should say I didn't make it explicit, but this, the, those are all Latin. It's all Latin. Okay. That was, kinda, that was the lingua franca. Franca. Franca, uh, <laughs> of the church for a, a long time, obviously. Um, so then uh, Gaudete and then uh, Letare in Fourth Sunday in Lent. I think that comes from Galatians 4, maybe, but uh, basically synonyms, yeah. Um, so um, might be sing with gladness or something like that, but, yeah. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of rejoicing um, to be had, right? And also, um, interestingly, both of those Sundays um, are the, they're the two Sundays in the church year where you have um, an alternate color. You know, like sports teams have an alternate uniform that they break out every once in a while. The alternate color, anybody know this on those two Sundays? Which two? Which uh, Letare and Gaudete. Pink. I thought so. Or actually, rose. Rose, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yes. Um, uh, and that's why on the third Sunday, okay, I'm rabbit trailing a little bit here, but I can't help so that's why on the third Sunday in Advent, you know, we have the Advent wreath, and then the third candle is pink or rose, right? Um, because it's Gaudete Sunday, the rose, uh, rose Sunday. So then in Laetare, the fourth Sunday in Lent. And in both of those cases, part of the thing is um, the, the strictures on fasting were much more strict um, in the Middle Ages especially. Um, during both Advent and Lent, we think of Lent as a season of, of fasting and so forth, but... Uh, historically, Advent was as well. Both of those Sundays, the third Sunday in Advent and the fourth Sunday in Lent, were kind of like halftime. All right, I'm using bad sports analogies for all these things, but it was like halftime, and so it was a day when there would be relief from the the fasting laws of the the fasting of the time. There we go. Um, so, by the way, I should uh, introduce this is our friend Christy Granis. Hi, Christy. And uh, Christy's husband, Michael, and, and well, both of them are friends of ours from going back to seminary days. And Michael and uh, two of their boys and yes. kids from their church are also at the confirmation retreat this weekend. So, actually, we were kind of teaming up Calvary, Lincoln Park, and Trinity Arcadia because um, we had like the same, same group. So, anyway, glad to have uh, Christy and the kids with us uh, today. All right, let's push on, Pastor. Get into the Kyrie, because this is really where I want to um, focus today is on, on the Kyrie. So Kyrie goes back, you know, uh, George asked about, is this just a Lutheran thing, or does it go back even further? Kyrie is a case in point of the very earliest days of the liturgy. 
And part of the reason we know that is because Kyrie is not Latin, it's Greek. And of course, uh, Greek was the language of the New Testament. It was kind of the, the first language of, of Christians. Um, and so the Kyrie, this is maybe one of the first parts, the first building blocks of the liturgy. So Kyrie just means Lord, and it's in the vocative, which means it's an, an address to, to the Lord. And the assumed second half of that is have mercy. And the Greek for have mercy is aliaison. Occasionally we'll use that full form. Kyrie, Kyrie, eleison. Kyrie, Kyrie, eleison. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. This Kyrie is the believer's cry of faith. So when we... We um, speak or sing the Kyrie, in peace let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. When you start looking for this, you recognize it all over the place in the Gospels. How many times people come up to the Lord and are crying out to him for mercy? So I'll give you just a couple of examples here from uh, Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman. Jesus went away from there, withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And again from Luke 17, the gospel we'll hear next Sunday. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. This is the constant cry of faith. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. So that when we pray that, when we sing that, when we say that in worship, it's like it's putting us back in their place, in the place of the Canaanite woman, in the place of those lepers, crying out to the Lord for mercy. But with that glad assurance and confidence that he hears us. I'm good. Thank you. Wonderful. We've got, let's see, actually, could I get a burger while you're Thank you, Yolanda. The Kyrie puts us in that place, that cry of faith, the perpetual cry of faith. But uh, I want to address a a question that sometimes comes up here because we have just already had the um, confession and absolution, right? We've already heard that word of forgiveness. And so sometimes people will ask, so why is it straight away we go back into a cry for mercy? Haven't we already heard and received God's mercy? Are we just taking a step back now going into the Kyrie again? Maybe you've thought that too or, or wondered about that. Now, the first response that we could give, just a simple, straightforward um, response from the liturgy, which we've kind of already hinted at, originally the confession and absolution was not part of the, the Sunday gathering. Okay. So that's, that's part of it, is that you would have gone from the intro to the Kyrie. But there's a, a, a more profound response to this, which is that the Kyrie is not a cry for mercy, for confession of sins, but it's a confident cry out to God for his blessing upon us. Um, number, so number four on your handout, the Kyrie is the glad confession, not of sins, but of God's mercy, and in the glad reception of our king's favor and favors. What do I mean by that? Well, um, around the time of Christ, in the the Greco-Roman Empire, 
when the king, the emperor, would come to the, a village or town, the people would line the streets of the town. And as he, he comes in along the way, the people would cry out and they would say, Kyrie eleison! Now, Kyrie, we think of it as Lord in the sense of, of God. But they would use that just in the more general sense of, of Lord, Master, King. Although, to be sure, um, they sometimes had a, a perspective on the emperor that he was God, or indeed the Son of God. But they would call out to him, Lord, have mercy, which was a way of asking for, for a boon from the king, for the king's favors, for your village, for your town. This was, was kind of, uh, if you will, a, a sort of impromptu ad hoc democracy, right? <laughs> like, please, king, we're, we're asking, we need better roads here. Lord, have mercy, right? <laughs> Say that one in Michigan, too, Kyrie right? <laughs> eleison. Now, it's interesting because the, the early church knew this kind of resonance for people, but they, they took it over just the same recognizing that now we're not calling out to, to temporal kings and queens and leaders for their mercy, for their favors. But we are calling out to the king of all creation that he might bless us, that we might receive his blessing in the confidence that he will do it. So take Mark 10, for example, the story of, of uh, blind Bartimaeus. It says, they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Just a side note, another one of these little um, verifications of the truthfulness of the Gospels is how often they include things that are embarrassing for the people who were um, transcribing it. Okay. Again and again, you have these uh, accounts in the Gospels of the disciples just being dunderheads. Okay? Here's a guy calling out to mercy for the Lord, to the Lord of mercy. Here, I need your help. And the disciples are like, Shh, enough with that already. Along these same lines, I mean, even more vivid example, we heard this a few weeks ago in worship, is when people are bringing their kids up to Jesus that he might bless them. And the disciples are like, back off. The master's got no time for you, little rugrats. <laughs> yeah. Again, you know that they talk with that New York accent. <laughs> but it's, it's a further kind of indirect verification of the truthfulness of this record. Because if you are just making up a story, are you going to have all these details that look really bad for you? No. You're going to glamorize yourself and all the smart decisions you made and all the great things. But the disciples just have this unflinchingly honest account of, of the Lord and his ministry. And there's a theological significance to that too, right? Because they recognize they are, were not and are not saved by uh, their virtue or how well they received Jesus. They are saved simply by the mercy of the Lord. Okay, digression over. So they, they rebuke, <laughs> they're, they're rebuking, be quiet, Bartimaeus. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. God bless him. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He's calling you, apparently. <laughs> and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, 
what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. When we cry out to the Lord, Lord have mercy, it's in that glad confidence of his grace and his mercy given to us. Even as Bartimaeus called out to Jesus, knowing, believing this Jesus, he is, he's faithful. He can do uh, what I'm asking of him. See, And I like too how he cries out all the more. He just kept calling out, kept asking. And I think that too is kind of reflected in, in the liturgy because how many times do we, we sing that Kyrie? Typically, it's like four or five times, right? Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Calling out to him. Luther Reed, a uh, 20th century scholar of the liturgy, Lutheran guy, of course, Luther Reed, um, he writes this. He says, The Kyrie is not another confession of sins, but a prayer for grace and help in time of need, the ardent cry of the church for assistance. Okay. All right. Questions about that so far, about the... Kyrie and that distinction. It's not a cry for confession. We know that we are forgiven. What's a cry for God's further help and aid? All right. Number five, then, on your handout, and more to the, the content of that cry, what it is that we're longing for. The Kyrie expresses a longing for shalom. Longing for shalom. You guys hear me use this, this great Hebrew word a lot. Um, shalom, peace as it's often translated, but not just peace as in the absence of war, but peace as this positive sense of flourishing and wholeness and, and well-being. One author puts it this way, that shalom is the way that things are supposed to be. See, the way that God originally created all things. When he says in the beginning, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. It was a shalomic state of affairs in the garden. That's what we were originally created for. That's what we are aching toward and looking forward to in the new creation is that restoration of, of shalom and the lion lays down with the lamb. Right? Um, and in the meantime, while we are caught between um, the fall and the coming of Christ, who is our shalom, Ephesians 2, and that final um, consummation of the shalom, and at the end of time, when our Lord comes again, we pray and we earnestly petition our Lord that we would know more of that shalom in this life, in this age. So you hear that echoing again and again in the Kyrie. For the peace from above, for the shalom from above, for the shalom of the whole world, for the well-being, the shalom of the church of God, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. This is a theme that runs straight through the scripture. Psalm 122, pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. And even in the name uh, Jerusalem, it's Yerushalom. So um, it's, you have the, it's the city of shalom, the city of peace. It's what it was created to be. May they be secure who love you. Shalom be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, shalom be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, Shalom, I leave with you. My shalom I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now this is interesting. Jesus says, not as the world gives to you. What does the peace of the world look like? How is it to be distinguished 
from the shalom that Jesus gives. How, how is the, Jesus says, not as the world gives do I give to you. The world um, has a, a certain kind of, of peace that it tries to offer to give. The peace that Jesus gives is categorically different. How would you distinguish them? What, uh, let's think of kind of a worldly peace. What does that look like? Yeah, Anne. Okay, and yeah. It requires everybody to get on board. <laughs> right. Or else. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, so a, a worldly piece is our doing. It requires everyone to, to get on board. Good. Other thoughts? Yeah. I feel like earthly peace is more day-to-day or yeah. temporal, and peace from shalom is more yes. of an arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... So covering all the... Yes, that's well put. So uh, a worldly peace is always very tenuous, right? It, it can always go as just a, a day-to-day um, kind of thing. But what the, the peace that Christ gives, the peace that surpasses all understanding, is that enduring peace that whatever might be going on um, in the world, it doesn't, it doesn't shake that. I've, um, we sang that line from the hymn and I alluded to it in the sermon. Um, fill us with a, a sacred, settled peace. It's a beautiful phrase. A sacred, settled peace. That's the shalom. It doesn't vary from, from day to day, sway here and there. So, good. Other, other things. Oh, yeah. I feel like earthly peace would be ceasefire. Sure, right. Or um, that there's always a loser. Like there's yeah. peace after a war. Right. There's peace after an argument, but in that there's always a loser. Oh, yeah, that's well put. So it's um, the peace that we can get, it's always kind of provisional and dependent upon somebody somebody losing. And in that respect, it's kind of, uh, it, it doesn't give you that full sense of shalom. It's just like things have, have quieted down a little bit. You know, there's, there's peace in the home, but it's only because we duct taped the kids' mouths shut, you know? Exactly. <laughs> There's still a loser in there. <laughs> so, yeah, John. Just, just uh, the peace of the absence of war. Right. And, and you can get peace by, uh, also by a truce. Sure. Right. And that, I mean, the, the peace that we have, uh, Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort ye my people. Um, because your, uh, her iniquity has been atoned for, her warfare has ended, right? God has affected that eternal heavenly truce, that peace um, in the heavens through the atoning sacrifice of, of Christ. I think you guys are also indicating something about that worldly peace where it's, it's external, right? So maybe in the world, things aren't at war for the moment, but does that mean that in the human heart that there's going to be peace? Not necessarily, Things outwardly might be okay, but inwardly, there might, it might still be roiling. And ultimately, what we are getting toward is that perfect peace. Uh, I was reading in my devotions, Isaiah um, 26. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Such a beautiful line. And I had looked this verse up for Anne, something that um, Anne was teaching on Shalom at the women's retreat. And the, the Hebrew phrase there, I was like, I wonder what that says, perfect peace. The Hebrew phrase was, shalom, shalom. <laughs> I kid you not. It was, it, it's, it's a shalomic shalom, right? But it just, that, that's the, the nature of the peace. You keep him in shalom, shalom, whose mind is stayed on you. That's a deeper peace, see, regardless of what, to what Becky was saying, regardless of what's going on on the outside. Yeah, Leslie. But if- the uh, 
worldly peace too. You, okay, we've been fighting, we've made peace. Sure. But I'm still unsettled. Oh yeah, right, for Very sure. Unsettled. Yes. Yeah, I mean, at the, at the end of a war, you're glad that it's over, but you're still unsettled, right? All is not well in the world. Whereas what we're ultimately looking forward to is you know, a kingdom that cannot be shaken and to a, an everlasting peace. Yeah, Tom, did you? I was, I was thinking about uh, Salem. When yes. Abraham you know, ran by chasing, fighting, and then on his way back. Right. That's a great point. So Melchizedek, right? Yeah. Um, so that's this, this interesting story. Um, if you've got your Bible, why don't we just look there real quick. This is a little bit of a digression, but it, uh, you made me think. It's, I hadn't thought of it this way. Um, this is Genesis chapter 14. And this uh, mysterious character, Melchizedek, shows up. And uh, he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament except in um, Psalm 110, which is incidentally the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Psalm 110, all right, Pastor, you brought it up. You're gonna, just going to leave us hanging with this. Um, Psalm 110 so it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Then especially this, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So... Um, that verse especially really gets picked up in the New Testament. Um, Jesus himself quotes it. The book of Hebrews makes a lot out of it. But Melchizedek, all right, this is Genesis 14, starting with verse 17. After his return, after Abram's return from the defeat of, oh, good Lord, Kedo, Kedor Leomer, let's go with that, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is to say king of Shalom, uh, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Who is this mysterious character? Now, I haven't read a whole lot of uh, what the church fathers have to say about this, but I would venture to guess that they see in here, and I hadn't thought about it like this before, Tom, but that this is a, a prefiguration or a Christophany, which is to say an appearance of Christ beforehand. Now, one second, John. W why do I say that? Because here's this guy, nobody really knows who he is, where he came, comes from, shows up out of nowhere. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace, which sounds a lot like Isaiah 9, right? He's the, the prince of peace. Um, and then, yeah, we don't hear anything more about him. He shows up in Psalm 110, and then it's applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Something fishy here, right? All right, John, go ahead. Salem also becomes Jerusalem. Exactly. Jer Jeru Jerusalem, the uh, Yer Shalom, the city of peace. So we could trace this all the way through, that Shalom Shalom that comes in Christ, our, our Prince of Shalom. Good. That was a little bit of a digression, but thank you. That was worth hearing. 
So our just, uh, again, a friend of Arcadia, he, he puts it this way. He says, peace is the condition of wholeness and well-being that now exists on earth and in heaven because of the incar incarnation and atoning death of Jesus. So it's that shalom that we know has already been, is already ours in principle in Christ. And what we are praying for and petitioning the king of the cosmos, the king of peace, is that he would continually realize it more and more in our lives and in our hearts. For the peace of the whole world, for the shalom of the, the church of God, we pray to the Lord. All right, a couple more, couple more thoughts here on, on the Kyrie. We think about the significance that it has for us in, in our life. Number six on your handout. The Kyrie keeps us in mind of Luther's last words. And uh, Luther's last words were these. You have it on, on your handout there. Wir sind alle Bettler. Hoc est verum. And it's interesting because this is a, a mixture of German and Latin. So the first phrase, wir sind alle Bettler, means we are all beggars. And then he goes to Latin, hoc est verum. This is true. And I think this is reflected in that gospel. Again, read it a little while ago. Today's gospel, um, where Jesus says, hey, look. When you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. Well, what is he saying by that? It's saying we never get to a place where we come before God's throne and he is in our debt, right? What do you have that you have not received? Uh, from him and through him and to him are all things, Romans 11. We come before God as beggars. You say, well, that sounds like kind of a grim thing. But understand this. We are the, the paupers whom God makes princes, see. We are the beggars on whom he bestows all the riches of his grace. He, he, he pours out upon us, all the lavishes upon us, all the wonders of his love and his forgiveness. We come to him with nothing so that he can give to us everything. And the only time we can get ourselves into trouble, and you see it in the Gospels, the only people who get themselves into trouble are those who come with hands already full of all of their good works, right? And say, ah, you know, Jesus, I could take him or leave him. I don't really need him. I'm, I'm kind of doing all right on my own. The Pharisee and the publican, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this guy because I'm already, you know, I'm fasting. I'm, I'm giving you tithes. I'm way better than this schmuck. Uh, but this guy, because his hands are already full, he can't receive from God. Jesus says to uh, the religious leaders, because you say we see, you are still blind. But as for this blind man, this is John chapter 9, as for this blind man, now because he knows that he's blind, he's made to see again. In different and, and in many and various ways, the Lord expresses this same truth again and again and again in the Gospels, that those who are poor in spirit are blessed. Those who are broke down and bankrupt before God are, are given all the riches of the kingdom. So the Kyrie is that constant cry of faith, that recognition that before the Lord veers in Dalla we are all beggars, hocus verum, right? This is true each and every day. But there's nothing better than to be a beggar before God. Don't be too proud before the throne of his grace. All right, one uh, last thought, and this is more a, um, uh, well, look, any questions or, or comments of, about that? Before I go to this, this last thought on here. I find it fascinating that Luther in his, his dying words is kind of vacillating between German and Latin, but this is just kind of the, 
the guy that he was. But he recognized to the very end, and he was even asked, uh, Dr. Luther, do you want to recant now? Um, you know, your, your teachings, here's your last shot. You know, you want to get your last rites. Okay, you had a good run of it with this Reformation stuff, but, you know, you're about to die, meet your maker. Do you want to hedge your bets? And no, he couldn't. He wouldn't do that because he recognized that he, we, simply a beggar who receives everything from, from God's grace. He wasn't going to double back on that. Then. All right, so last thing. This is more uh, just a, a general um, comment on the Kyrie and introit as we look ahead to the rest of the liturgy. The liturgy embodies the ordered variety that humans need to thrive. Ordered variety. And you could put this different ways. Um, but what I mean by that is, and, and physics will even bear this out, that humans, we need both stability and spontaneity. We need things mostly to be familiar to us but not exactly the same every single time. You need both of those things. So on the one hand, you don't want things to be um, just spontaneous all the time. You don't want to have to think about how you're going to put on your pants every day, for example. right? That's not a place or a time to get creative. <laughs> um, on, on the other hand, moving away from the pants analogy, like you don't want to eat peanut butter and jelly for every meal for the rest of your life. Maybe you do. Right? If I could have crunchy and creamy, maybe I could do it. Um, you need both that familiarity and still variety. Now, I mention this because that, that way of being is built into the liturgy with these two, two sets of elements that are called the orders, uh, uh, the ordinaries and the propers. Okay, the ordinaries and the propers. Now, I've uh, defined these on your handout here at the bottom of page three. First, the intro it. Is, is the first of the propers. The propers are those parts of the service that change or are proper each Sunday or season of the church year. Okay? So the propers include the introit, the collect of the day, the prayer of the day, the hymns, the scripture readings, the sermon, hopefully. <laughs> Although I will say, in a sense, every sermon is the same sermon, right? It better be. Jesus for you, God's gifts for you. But, um, and then the colors of the church here. Okay? These are propers. These are things that rotate and change each and every week. All right. The Kyrie, on the other hand, is an example of the ordinaries from the Latin ordo or order. So these are those parts of the liturgy that are fixed from Sunday to Sunday and season to season. The ordinaries include the Kyrie, the hymn of praise, which is you know the glory be to God the Father, although I note in there, even there we have a little bit of a, Variation with this is the feast. Sometimes we use that for the hymn of praise. The creed, although again, there's Nicene and the apostles, and heaven help us, the Athanasian. Um, the Sanctus from week to week, and the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God. So these kind of form the backbone of the liturgy. They're the ordinaries that are there week by week by week. The propers are changing from week by week, where the ordinaries are there all the time. Another analogy you might think of this would be like with jazz, okay? And uh, any jazz fans in here? So I don't know a lot about jazz, but this is more just from my observation. With jazz, especially kind of improvisational jazz, you'll sort of have a fixed backbeat. Boom, 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 boom. And then over top of that, you have the... 
and you know, you maybe you've got the saxophone going all over the place and kind of improvising with it, bringing that variation and variety. But it's only able to do that because there's that fixed boom, 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 boom. And again, you know, you get your great jazz masters, a guy like John Coltrane, where they would say no two performances were ever exactly the same. But by the same token, you always knew what it was. You knew it was a love supreme, but it's going to sound a little bit different in this performance to another. Similarly, the liturgy has that, that fixedness about it, where week by week by week, you know you're getting the goods. But then there's that variation built in with the, with the propers. See? Um, and I came across this uh, quote uh, in a book by two guys, Chip and Dan Heath. I think they put this beautifully. They say, variety is the spice of life. But notice that it does not say variety is the entree of life. Nobody dines on pepper and oregano. A little novelty can go a long way, right? And it's, it's that way with the, the worship life of the church. There is a salutary um, ver, uh, variety from Sunday to Sunday, from season to season, but we don't need to reinvent the wheel, right? We're not remaking everything from scratch because God has given us these, these gifts and we are being formed as his people in that rhythm of faith week by week. All right, any final thoughts or questions? <coughs> Very good. Okay, next Sunday we'll um, continue through our study of the liturgy. Thank you for being here and for your participation. God bless.